Today's Bible readings taken from Deuteronomy and Matthew. Um, the first verse is um, Deuteronomy um, chapter 5, verse 17. You shall not murder. The second one, please turn to um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 to 26. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and, are, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. I think I should introduce myself first because not everyone knows me. My name is Samson Toh. I've been around at Chatham Church for seven years, and I'm married to Rebecca for five years now. And I feel privileged to have the chance to share God's Word today with us all, and I want to thank Pastor Hewu for inviting me to speak. But as we start, let's pray. Lord, I pray that your Word, which is living and active, may go out today through the scriptures and through my word, and you will not leave us unchanged. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When I first received the topic from Pastor Hewa, I thought it was hard because I think very few of us have actually broken the sixth commandment. But the more I think about it, um, the more I think it is relevant. Considering all the controversial issues related to murder, vengeance, abortion, war, capital punishment, self-defense, or euthanasia, we want to know the Bible's view on this, don't we? Although I'm not covering these issues today, we won't have time to do that, but we'll see from the Bible some principles that help us start tackling them. The Sixth Commandment is also relevant because the law isn't just prohibiting a set of behaviors, but also promoting a new set of behaviors. The law doesn't just prevent us from taking life. It also pushes us to do something, to do what? To give life. The whole Christian Bible is, in a way, is about God giving life and ending death. The author of the Gospel of John introduces Jesus as the one who has life in him, and through him, everyone who believes in him may also have life. So God and Jesus have been showering life 
in the world, like rain showering on parched land. And Jesus asked Christians to do the same thing, to give life to the world as He gives life. So our question today is, how can Christians bring life to the world? We can explore this question under three headings. Number one, the principle behind the law. Number two, the root of murder. Number three, the solution to the problem. The principle behind the law, the root of murder, and the solution to the problem. So firstly, the principle behind the law. When we hear the word murder, what do you think about? We probably first think about premeditated murder. The Bible's definition of murder includes premeditated murder, but also goes beyond that. The Hebrew word in Deuteronomy 5 for murder is rasak. Commentators say that the word can mean premeditated murder as well as negligent killing. For example, if two people go into the forest to cut some trees for wood, when one person swings the axe, the head of the axe comes off accidentally and hits the other person and kills him, that person will have committed murder, rasak. Some Old Testament laws also tell us what are good or bad ways of handling human lives. Deuteronomy 22:8, for example, requires Israelites to build fences on the roofs of new houses. If the homeowners don't do that and people fall off and die, the homeowners are guilty of that person's death. Also, Exodus 22, verses 2 to 3, talks about self-defense against intruders. If intruders come at night, which they usually do, and the homeowners kill them, the homeowners are innocent. But if the, home, if the intruders come during the day, not at night, during the day, and the homeowners kills the intruder, the homeowners are guilty. Now, these laws might sound arbitrary or, and archaic when we read them in isolation. Instead, I think we need to place them in the bigger picture of the text and the original sociocultural context. Then, we'll see that the Bible has a coherent teaching about human life. Let's return to the laws we just looked at. So here... Let me read this for you. It's the law about the woodchoppers. Now this is the case of the one who commits manslaughter, who may flee there and live, when he kills his friend unintentionally, not hating him previously, as when a person goes into the forest with his friend to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down the tree, and the iron head slips off the handle and strikes his friend so that he dies. He may flee to one of these cities and live, Otherwise, the avenger of the blood might pursue him in the heat of his anger and overtake him because the way is long and takes his life. Though he was not sentenced to death, since he had not hated him previously. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall set aside for yourself three cities. To us, the case of the woodchoppers and similarly, the lack of rooftop barriers seem like unfortunate accident, right? But when we think about it, 
more carefully. Those scenarios are actually more like intentionally skipping the annual checkups that your cars need. For those of you who drive, you need to annually check your cars. So if you skip them and you drive, you still drive your car, everything seems to work fine until finally one day the brakes don't function and you can't stop your car and you kill someone. Likewise, the wood choppers should have taken necessary precautions before using the axe, such as checking if the axe head is loose. The builders should also make sure, should have made sure the rooftops are safe for people to go on. And if they don't do these precautions to protect other people from harm, what the law does is essentially charge them of a crime, the crime of carelessly handling human life. Ironically, since these killers were not careful with other, pe other people's lives as a punishment, they had to be extra careful with their own lives from then on. They are exiled to designated cities of refuge and must stay there for the rest of their lives. If they ever leave that city, the law then allows the family of the victims to kill them in revenge. Therefore, this commandment, along with other laws, is teaching the Israelites to go the extra mile and to take active steps to protect human lives from harm. So the command, thou shalt not murder, is much more than just prohibiting the taking of lives. It is also about proactively protecting lives. And we might ask, why does God value human lives so highly? In short, it's because we are made in His image. God Himself gives the ultimate reason against murder in Genesis 9. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in His own image. God is saying that humans are image bearers of God. And so nobody, nobody should shed any human blood. What does it mean to say that humans are image bearers? Think of national flags. The flags themselves are just regular pieces of cloth. But because the flag bears the image of a country, the more a person respects the country, the more he or she respects the flag. Everyone who loves the country will also love the flag. This is similar to what the Bible means when it describes humans as images of God. Anyone who respects and loves God will also respect and love other human beings. So point one, to summarize, human lives are important and we must handle human lives carefully. Before we move on, as I said, the topic of murder is related to a host of other issues and controversies in our modern world. We've all heard lots of news or discussed um, abortion recently. It is a deeply complex issue, and I don't have time to cover it today, but we should definitely discuss it more as a church. Here are two books that you may want to read for a start. One is on abortion, and the other is on assisted suicide. Both are written by Fawn Roberts and published by, by the Good Book, Good Book Company. So, a quick application of the first point. 
Any work that helps to safeguard human lives is pleasing to God. Any job that protects humans directly or indirectly, paid or unpaid, is a blessing to the society and pleasing to God. We often think of medical professions or firefighters when we talk about jobs that save lives, but many jobs also protect lives. One example in Hong Kong is the inspectors and skilled workers who check and maintain windows in housing estates. Their job is to prevent windows from falling off and hurting people. A lot of jobs perform similar functions in the society. They serve people and God. So appreciate people who do these jobs. And if you're a youth, consider joining these professions. Then point two. So we talked about the rule, the principle behind the law. Now the root of murder. Any discussion of the Bible's teaching about murder has to include Matthew 5. Jesus exposes murder's true nature in that passage. If you have one of the handouts with the scriptures, uh, I invite you to uh, take a look at the passage together. If you don't open your phone or um, your Bible, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, fool, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. On the surface, Jesus seems to link murder with all kinds of anger. If this was the case, our lesson would be, anger is wrong. We shouldn't be angry at all. But that's not what Jesus is saying. First, God is angry on many occasions in the Bible, but He's holy. Jesus Himself gets angry sometimes and is sinless. Apostle Paul also says, in your anger, do not sin. In Ephesians 4, Jesus is not targeting all kinds of anger. It is not saying that people shouldn't get angry at all. The type of anger that Jesus condemns can be seen in verse 22. Jesus says, you'll be judged if you call people raka or fool. Now, raka, what does it mean? Raka is an Aramaic word that roughly means empty-headed. The word targets at the intellect of the person. The word fool, by contrast, aims at the character. It describes the act of demonizing other people. So taken together, these two words talk about a sentiment of contempt, a feeling or belief that an other person is inferior to you. There's another story in the Old Testament that encapsulates brotherhood, contempt, and murder. In Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel shows how contempt could lead to killing. As the story goes, one day, these two brothers each makes a sacrifice to God. God rejects Cain's sacrifice while accepts Abel's. Cain becomes murderously angry. 
He then lures his brother into the fields and kills him. Why is, angry, why is Cain so angry, you might ask? He's angry because Abel outperforms him. He sees Abel as the problem, not himself. And so he sees killing Abel as the solution. We can imagine in the story Cain muttering to himself, Raka, that fool, how could God pick him but not me? Now we can see the type of anger that Jesus warns us against. The root of murder is contempt. God will judge contemptuous insults as he judges murders. Jesus tells us that brothers don't kill each other out of the blue. Murder begins all the way back when siblings first start to devalue and dehumanize each other. Jesus' assessment is still relevant today. Unfortunately, how often when we see mass shootings done by people who falsely believe in racial supremacy, why was the Holocaust committed by a nation that thought that their race was the apex of human history? We might not have committed murder, but when we look down upon our colleagues, when we forget that an annoying friend is an image of God, or when we insult people who hold different political views than we do, we are committing murder in our hearts. The same sin that nudges murder, murderers to go one step too far also nudges us. Now, the application for this, here are some tests that we can do to scan for contempt in our hearts. Do we think we are better than anyone, an individual group of people, or a class of people? Do we have a list of people in our heads that we just wish would disappear? How would you describe them in your diaries? Do we fantasize telling people off? What do we say in those fantasies? So, the root of murder. We're all guilty of murder in some ways. So, point three, if we're all guilty of showing contempt towards somebody, nobody has a clean sheet, then what can we do? What is the solution? Jesus mentions a practical approach in verses 23 to 25. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus suggests we need to reconcile, reconcile or settle matters with people we have hurt. Is Jesus asking us to say sorry even though we don't mean it? Like one of my, my students, when they punch each other, well, they don't punch each other, they usually diss each other, and then 
I tell them, say sorry to each other, and they would say, sorry. Like, is that what Jesus is asking us to do? Like, not really. Because the word reconcile means to exchange enmity for friendship. And settle, settle matters means literally to wish someone well. You need to think well of someone or ideally be their friends. This is really difficult. Jesus is asking us to treat our enemies with civility, dignity, and also to wish them well. We need to change fundamentally how we see the other person. We need to truly hope that good things will happen to them and be happy when good things do actually happen to them. It requires a much deeper change in us than just smiling and say hi in the lift lobby. That, that seems like a mountain too tall to climb. But Jesus gave us a clue on how to do it. We find the clue in the two examples he used. He asked us to reconcile with our opponents. But in both scenarios, notice, in both scenarios, we are the ones who need to ask for forgiveness. Why is this important? Let me show you with Apostle Peter as an example. In the Gospels, Peter, the leader of the disciples, shows what it is truly like to have a false sense of superiority. He truly thinks that he is better than the other disciples, and he's not shy to say, say it to their face. And remember, the parable that Jesus tells others about forgiving others not seven times, but 70 times seven times. Do you remember who asked the question that prompts Jesus to say this? It's Peter. It is Peter who asks if it is good enough to forgive others seven times. Think about what Peter is like to ask such a question. He must have believed that he is always wrong by others, but would never wrong others. People who know they mis make mistakes won't want God to set an upper limit on forgiveness. Peter did ask Jesus to set an upper limit. So this is Peter. But when we continue to follow the gospel story, we know Peter completely changes after he denies Jesus three times. By then, he realized he is also a failure. In John 21, Peter has lost his self-assertion and pride. In that story, Jesus appears to the disciples after his resurrection and asks Peter three times whether Peter loves him. Three times, Peter simply says, I love you. Without comparing himself with others, without saying, I love you more than others, no. Peter doesn't do that because he knows he has failed. Failures can lead to fundamental changes if there is forgiving love. When Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Jesus is giving Peter a chance to seek and to receive forgiveness. Each of the three times, Jesus says, feed my sheep. Jesus tells Peter that he still trusts him. We are all like Peter in some ways. We have not lived up to God's standard or even our own standard. How do you respond to your failures? Do we live in regret, inferiority, or denial? Or will we look at Jesus 
love for us. Jesus is the elder brother that loves us. Unlike Peter or Cain, Jesus is truly superior to us because he is God. But he emptied himself for us. He emptied himself of his glory and became a slave. He treated, we treated him as our enemies, and he still treated us as his brothers and sisters. He had the right to let us die, but instead he gave us life. Dwell on these truths, brothers and sisters, and let them melt our hardened hearts. Pray that the Holy Spirit will make these truths real to us. Finally, two points of applications. First, pray. Reflect on who we should reconcile with. Ask God to show you your faults. Ask God to show us the beauty of that brother and sister you hold contempt for. Second, reconcile. Ask yourself this question. What would honor and please God? Not what would please ourselves, but what would please God? Then forgive. It doesn't mean you shouldn't hold the person responsible for his mistakes, but unless we forgive, our motivation is not for the person's good. It is to make the person pay, right? We need to remember we need to wish them well. We need to remember the sin that is in them is also in us. Then, and only then, can we talk to the person about the issue. In 1985, two teenagers in Hong Kong were brutally murdered in the Braemar Hill area. On their bodies were dozens of wounds, and the girl had been raped before she was killed. The five murderers were all quite young, ranging from 16 to 25 years old. Only the youngest of them, Wan Sam Long, pleaded guilty, and he became the persecution witness. All the murderers were eventually sentenced to indefinite prison terms or a life imprisonment. But this story doesn't end there. A decade later, when Hong Kong was nearing the handover in 1997, the two underage murderers faced the problem. Their original prison terms were indefinite, right? So they needed the new chief executive to set concrete prison terms for them. And to everyone's surprise, the families of the victims, the families of the victims announced that they had forgiven Wan Sambong and wrote letters to the chief executive to appeal for him. They said they had forgiven Wan Sambong because they, quote, believe in mercy and forgiveness and believe that those who understand and regret their evil actions seek and seek forgiveness should also be forgiven." Unquote. Wan Samlong completed his terms in 2004. On the day he was set free, he was interviewed by all the news agencies of the city. And he said this. It was in Cantonese, but I translated it into English. I've hurt the families of the victims so deeply. I know I can never undo the hurt. I simply want to say sorry. I will turn over a new leaf and be a different person. When I know the families of the victims forgave me, I couldn't believe it. It, it was too shocking. I couldn't believe it. But I experienced 
what's most powerful in the world, and that is forgiveness, mercy, and love. The world desires and draws towards forgiveness and reconciliation. The three words, I forgive you, could change a person in a way. 19 years of prison terms cannot. The world only has a faint understanding of this power, but Christians see the full power of forgiveness in Jesus. Imagine what the world will see when Christians forgive each other and forgive non-Christians. We can be a light in darkness. We can be countercultural in a way that attracts the world to God. We can give life to a world that is oppressed by sin and death. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the life you, your Son, and the Holy Spirit have given us. We pray that the Holy Spirit will give us faith to trust in you. Change us with your gospel and power. Help us to forgive and make us humble so that your name may be praised. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.